Um, thank you for ministering in song. Thank you for the truth that you sang. And thank you for your patience with us not having a choir. Um, I'm looking forward to the day when we can sing as a choir, that we can have a choir minister. I know that many of you who are, are part of that are looking forward to that. Um, but in the meantime, we enjoy one another and enjoy singing truth from God's word. We're going to be in Psalm 66. Psalm chapter 66. And while you're turning there, I left a book on the front pew that I need to get because it's really important. Pastor Tim left his glasses, so I got him his glasses the other day, and I left a book. That's it. That's it. Thank you. All right, we're even now. Thanks. Appreciate it. Here at Grace Church, we place a pretty high priority. I'd say we place a supreme priority on studying the Bible. It's God's Word, right? And we have been using a tool, we've, we've put, together, uh, get, put together a tool to study God's Word. It's called the Foundations Book. Okay? Many of you are familiar with this. Perhaps you've gone through it yourself. Perhaps you are helping someone else go through it. It's a tool to be able to understand doctrine. That's all it is. In this tool, there are a number of chapters covering core doctrine. One of the chapters, chapter 3, talks about confession of sin. In fact, that's the title of the chapter, Confession of Sin. And on page 38 in this book, there is a question, talks about the Christian and the Christian's relationship to God and how God views sin, how God views sin in the life of a Christian even. And there's a question that talks about, uh, that asks about the consequence of sin being in a Christian's life. In fact, here's the question. It says, a serious consequence of sin is revealed in Psalm 66, verse 18. And if you've turned to Psalm 66, you can look at verse 18. It says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The word regard book says, means to cherish or hold the opposite of confession. This verse scares me from the standpoint of when I pray to God, I want to know that he hears me. Now, I say this verse scares me because I'm a human being, and I feel like I know my heart, but I don't know it as well as God knows it. And so, as I learn that I am to confess my sin, I'm given the promise that God is faithful and just to forgive that sin. But that, did I confess all of my sin? And, and praise God, we have verses 19 and 20 of, of Psalm 66 to, to give us some assurance. Look at what it says. But God certainly has heard. The psalm writer isn't left to wonder, did I cherish this sin? No. He didn't. God certainly has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Praise God. If there's sin that we're cherishing, if there's sin that we're selfishly holding on to, if we're holding on to something that violates God's commandment, then the Lord will not hear your prayers. This scenario is frightening, yet we have the assurance that the psalm writer had his prayers heard. It's funny because as we think, and, and if you are familiar with maybe this psalm, you might be familiar with this verse. 
If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In fact, this might be the most well-known verse in this chapter. But can I tell you, this chapter is actually very optimistic from the standpoint of, when you look at verse 18, it's a warning. But you have verses 1 through 17 and 19 through 20 that are very forward-thinking in regards to how a Christian can live their life. Much of the chapter is about not so much wondering if sin is in your life. In fact, really, sin and the enemies of God is only mentioned very briefly in this chapter. There is another theme in this chapter that directly complements this verse. I bring this chapter to your attention because we might be familiar with Psalm 6618, but we need to understand it in the context. And so as we look at Psalm 6618, we need to see all of the ways that God is praised. I'm just going to rifle through this really fast. There are over, there are at least 14 different ways that praise is mentioned in this chapter. Verse 1, shout. Verse 2, sing. Verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your works. Verse 4, all the, world, all the earth will worship you. We see sing again in verse 4. In verse 5, come and see the works of God. Verse 6, rejoice. Verse 8, bless, O God. Verse 8, sound his praise. Skip down to verse 13. I shall come to you into your I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows. Verse 15, offer sacrifice. Verse 16, come and hear. Verse 16, tell of what he has done. And then verse 17, I cried out to him with my mouth. Fourteen different ways that praise is mentioned in this chapter. And so the thought I'd like to leave with you today is that when we think about God hearing our prayers, if God would hear your prayer, then he must hear your praise. Okay? If God would hear your prayer, Psalm 66, 18 is a wait. If God would hear your prayer, then he must hear your praise. And I'd like to divide this chapter up into two different sections. And how we see praise for God played out in the life of the psalm writer. In verses 1 through 15, we see praise to God for his wondrous deeds. Praise to God for his wondrous deeds. So let's look there in verses 1 and following. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing glory to his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. In these verses, we see praise to God for his dominion. For his dominion. These first four verses actually kind of go hand in hand with Psalm 65 and Psalm 67. Now in the book of Psalms, there's 150 to choose from. You know, there's, the most, there's more chapters in the Psalms than any other book of the Bible. Are these Psalms just kind of randomly put together? Like if you took 66 off of it and put like 123, would it really matter? Well, the answer is yes, it would. Okay? It would matter, especially in the context here of Psalm 66, because it actually forms a triad with Psalm 65 and Psalm 67. 
Psalm 65, you look in verse 5. My soul is satisfied with the marrow. I'm sorry, uh, verse 5. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. Okay? So we see God's dominion pronounced there. We also see God's dominion pronounced in chapter 67. I know you're doing a lot of flipping. Keeps your fingers nimble. Keeps you awake. It's good. Psalm 67, verse 2. That your way may be known on all the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Okay? So you have Psalm 65, 66, 67. All inviting the earth to praise God. To praise God that he is over all. He has dominion. In chapter 66, our text for today, verse 4, we read that all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. I don't know about you, but when I read that, and then I'm looking at today, or I look at just life in general, this can be a hard thing to believe at times. I mean, looking at the status quo, this can be a hard thing to believe. But the fact of the matter is, is that the psalm writer here is inviting his audience. It would have been Israel. The psalm writer is inviting his audience to acknowledge God's dominion. Acknowledge it. He's inviting all of the earth to acknowledge God's dominion. But the fact of the matter is, even if they don't do it now, they will do it someday. We have that as a promise. All of the earth will acknowledge God. We have in Philippians chapter 2 the promise that before Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. It's going to happen. Whether we think it may or may not, and you might be here today and you think, well, I've never done that. And I have no intention of doing that. And I, I just want to encourage you, better to do it now than in the day to come. All the world will acknowledge God's dominion. And so we praise him for that. In verses 5 through 9, we praise God for his deliverance. His deliverance. Verse 5, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the Son of Man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There, let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise above, who keeps us in life and does not allow our, sleep, our feet to slip. The beginning of verse 5, we see the first of two invitations. We're going to talk about those a little bit, uh, a bit more in depth later. But we see the first of two invitations to come. The psalmist is not satisfied just to simply tell his audience of what is true. He wants his audience to come and see it for themselves. See it for yourself. And the wording here would have reminded Israel of their deliverance from Egypt. We see this in verse 6, right? He turned the sea into dry land. Well, when did that happen? Well, when Israel had escaped from Egypt, they had left Egypt, 
His, uh, Egypt is falling after him. He divides the waters, not only to leave Egypt, but also dividing the waters of the Jordan to enter into the promised land. God provided deliverance that in their history they would have recalled and remembered. And by remembering what God had done for his people in the past, really two things would have been true. First of all, Israel would have been assured of his protection and his strength as they feared him. This was a promise made to Israel, and it was not a promise to be taken lightly. But second of all, and we see this especially in verse 7, those who would rebel against him should reconsider a, any attempt to elevate themselves before God. It will end badly. History points to those who elevate themselves against God. It will end badly. And so we see opportunity to praise God for his dominion, to praise God for his deliverance. But then thirdly, we praise God for his difficulties. Say his difficulties? Yeah, let's look at it. Verse 10. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. Maybe your translation might say prison. You laid an oppressive burden on our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows to you, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls and with male goats. They say, this is kind of a, maybe a, a, a turn you weren't expecting in the flow of thought. Here God, here, here the psalm writer is extolling God for his dominion. He's extolling God for his deliverance. And now he's extolling God, he's praising God for some pretty awful human things. Human things that ultimately God has a responsibility for at some level. I mean, he says... For you have tried us, O God. Verse 11, you brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden on our loins. It's clear from the passage that God is the sovereign instigator. We can't hold God at fault. We can't point the finger at God and accuse him of sin. But is God any less sovereign when these circumstances take place? Look at verse 11. I'm sorry, uh, look at verse 10. You have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. Several months ago, um, I was with a man in our church, and uh, it was actually just after the funeral of a loved one. And he and I, this was um, actually March 13th, I remember the day, because a lot changed right around that time. And it's significant to why I'm sharing this with you. He and I were, were sitting there talking, and he was uh, telling me about some of the changes that were already taking place in his family due to COVID. Uh, a trip that his daughter was, had already paid a lot of money to go on had been canceled. There was no opportunity for refund. Obviously, the circumstances there were such that he had just lost a loved one. And as he's sitting across the table, he's like, you know, my, 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 my kid is is doing these really crazy hard math problems these days. 
You remember those, those hard math problems? And, and the thought that comes to my mind is there is simplicity at the end of complexity. Like, that thought's not original with me. But there's simplicity at the end of complexity. And my mind really started thinking about this. And the gears started turning. So let me, let me explain to you, because I really feel like this is what the psalm writer is doing here. He's giving us simplicity, but it's at the end of complexity. What do we mean? Okay. So those, you know, try to suppress the post-traumatic stress disorder of all those difficult math problems that you did in high school, right? And where your teacher told you to show your work, right? When I was in school, you know, we had these math books that we could just open up to the back and the answer was there. And we could use that to check our work. That was the simplicity, right? You open the back of the book, you see the answer. See the problem, there's the answer. Write the answer down. I got it right, right? The complexity comes though, by doing the problem. The complexity comes from following all of the steps that get you from point A to point B. We are given the solution to the problem here. The solution to the problem is, you have tried us, O oh God. You have refined us as silver is refined. That's the simplicity of it. We know the answer. We could even maybe assign why God is doing what he's doing. But in the middle of those, and let's be honest, on the front end of that problem, it's a whole lot more difficult to see the back end of that problem. Especially when you're working through the complexity of it all. Let's look at James chapter 1 for a moment. We'll come back to Psalm 66. James chapter 1. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this word here at the beginning of verse 2, consider it all joy, or if your translation says count it all joy, this is actually a business term. It's an accounting term. I don't know a whole lot about accounting, but I do know that you have revenue, right? And then you have not revenue, <laughs> right? Debt or whatever. You have revenue and not revenue. And what James is telling the Christians here is consider what? Consider when you encounter various trials, consider it joy. It is revenue for you. He doesn't say consider it all happy. He says, in your life ledger, put these trials in the revenue column. The simplicity of it. Put it there. But in the meantime, you have all the complexity. You know, when it's all over, 
I consider that joy. Because it's over? That's nice when it's over. But when you're on the front end and you're starting to work through the complexity, you don't want to put it in the revenue column. It doesn't feel like it should go in the revenue column. But we have, again, the simplicity of it. We know where it's going. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So whether or not we're in the midst of the trials, or when we are in the midst of the trials, and whether we're near the front side or the back side, we must remember that God is doing in them what he's doing in them. He's building endurance. In other words, show your work. Back to Psalm 66. Verse 10, for you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. That refining process, I've never refined silver, but I read about it. And what I read about it is that it, or any other precious metal that's refined, is put in heat and it breaks apart. It comes apart. And when it comes apart, all that isn't pure burns up, and what's left is the real thing, or at least closer to the real thing. Maybe the circumstances that we are trying so hard to keep together, our sense of comfort, our sense that everything really is okay, Maybe that sense needs to be broken apart and we are left then with who we really are before God. And what is left is a purified, refined Christian. And thus, we praise God for his difficulties. We praise God for what he is doing. Even, with, even if we're in the middle of the complexity. There is the simplicity at the end. God is refining you and me and us. Let's praise him for that. So we praise God for his wondrous deeds, how he has dominion, how he has delivered, and how he has ordained difficulties. And as we call on him, confident that he will hear our prayer, we must also praise God secondly, not, for his one, not just for his wondrous deeds, but for his listening ear. Back to Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. You know, we looked at verse 18 already, and we saw that those who cherish sin in their hearts are coming to God, but they're coming to God on their terms. And so when we praise God for his listening ear, we must acknowledge first that he listens, but he listens on his terms. 
He listens on his terms. The God who is to be praised for his wondrous deeds should not be relegated to the role of lucky rabbit's foot. When times get tough, he is a holy God who demands total devotion. You look at the worship of the psalmist back then, verses 13 through 15. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings, he says in verse 13. I shall pay you my vows which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. This almost sounds like one of those foxhole conversions, right? He's in distress, cries out to the Lord, makes a vow. If you get me out of this, I'm going to... I'm not exactly certain who the psalm writer is or what the circumstances were, but I do know this. That while the psalm writer was in distress, he cried to the Lord, the Lord heard him, and the psalm writer in turn, honored what he would vow, what he vowed to God. We see that in verse 15. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. In addition to requiring complete devotion, God's ability to answer prayer, answers prayers is to be shared with others and not just simply kept to oneself. Look at verse 16. Come in here. Invitation number two, right? Verse one, I'm sorry, in verse five, come and see the works of God. Verse 16, come and hear all who fear God. Towards the beginning of the psalm, the sense was come and see the works of God, who's awesome in his deeds. Now he says, come and, see, come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. The psalm writer is actually kind of working much like a funnel. He starts off with a global audience. Come, all peoples. Then he starts to channel it down, recounting the works of Israel. Come and see, come and hear God's people. And then he comes down to the personal element. I will show you, I will tell you what he has done for my soul. The psalm writer, in verse 18, uses an interesting term. Verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now, that might not be noteworthy to you. But if you look at the rest of Psalm 66, the psalm writer uses God often. And in the Hebrew, that's the term Elohim. Okay? But here, and it's the only time he uses it in this chapter, he uses the word Adonai. You may think, Lord, maybe you know, the proper name of God. Well, he doesn't use that. Sometimes Adonai can serve as a substitute for God's proper name, Yahweh. But here, the psalm writer uses Adonai. Why is that significant? Why should we care? Because that term Adonai is translated Lord or Master or Sir. It's often used even in a human element. Okay? So, you think of, you know, those medieval movies, you know, where you have kings and you have knights and you have usually them all talking in very thick British accents and they respond to the king by saying, my lord, right? My lord, right? That's really at the heart of why this term is being used. The psalm writer is calling God his lord because he is sovereign. He is the master He's the one that's being prayed to, right? 
So it stands to reason that he's the one that decides the response upon the prayer. He's the master. The Lord, the one who has dominion over all the earth, the one who's sovereign over all creation, over all peoples, over all circumstance, is the one that we pray to. And as a result, we come to him on his terms. God wants our lifestyle and our values to reflect him being the ruler or the master of our lives. God is not the parent that is left when the child turns 18 to go figure out life on its own, only to have that child return saying, hey, I'm out of money. Can I borrow some? That's not the relationship that God wants with his children. Not simply he's there to bail us out. But however we live, that's fine by us. That's fine by him. No, it's not fine by him. He is our master. The prodigal son understood this principle, didn't he? When Jesus shared that parable in Luke 16, the prodigal son wants his inheritance, goes out, squanders it, ends up in a pig pen, realizes, my father's servants have it better than me. And so he comes home. And when he comes home, he doesn't demand the rights of a son. He asks for the privilege of just being a slave. Why? Because the father is the master. And his heart, his response was, I don't just want you to get me out of my circumstance. I want you to receive me. And I'm willing to be whatever it is you want me to be. It's submission. That's what the psalm writer is saying. If I cherish, if I selfishly hold on to wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And, as this, and this example really leads us to another reason why we praise God for his listening ear. He listens on his terms, but he also listens with loyal love. Look at verse 20. Blessed be God, who has not turned away from my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. If verse 19 weren't enough to assure Israel that God hears the prayers of the righteous, verse 20 affirms that God has not turned away from his prayer. In this world, for love, this word for loving kindness is used throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament. It's a love that is steadfast and faithful. God never practices cancel culture with his children. Ever. His children, his family, he loves with an unfailing love. So when we read Psalm 66, 18, when we are studying God's word with someone, and we're confronted with this verse, we're confronted with the seriousness of this verse, and we're reminded that our prayers can be hindered when we treasure sin, let's also remember that God wants us to hear more than just your confession. He also wants to hear your praise. So, so what? That's a great message, great mantra. Be warmed and be filled. Have a great day. Well, it's got to look like something. From a corporate standpoint, we gather together to remind each other to praise God. Our congregation should be one that praises God together. In a time where so much is out there that can divide us among ourselves and show us how different we are, we must rejoice in God together. We must love one another and praise God together. 
Psalm 66 is also a call for mutual attentiveness. For others to be aware of God and his awesome deeds, right? That invitation, come and hear, come and see. But what about when our brothers and sisters in Christ are saying that? Come and hear, come and see. You know what we should do? We should come and hear and come and see. There's value in hearing what God has done in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which begs, which demands for us being with each other. How can we have someone come and hear and come and see what God has done in our lives and then in turn ignore what God is doing in the lives of others? What if they're inviting us? As it should be. We must take the time to watch, to listen, to hear them as they testify of God's greatness and goodness. And with them, we have the opportunity to praise God. So from a corporate standpoint, let us praise God. But this corporate praise must start with individuals. It must start with you. And so I ask this question, and I ask this question about your testimony. Your testimony with believers and unbelievers alike. Are you known for being one that praises God? Not simply as just an addition at the end of a phrase, or when things go well, praise God. That's good. But is your disposition one that is true of a person who praises God? When we study the Bible with others, when we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we have something in our life that's worthy of praising God for, do people know and do they see? What would this look like practically? I think there could be many ways, but I think maybe the most basic one is prayer. What do you mean by that? Well, may all the peoples who are gathered in Menor High School Honor God as I bow my head and thank the Lord for my meal. Now, do you stand on top of the table, teens? No, don't do that. But what if you bowed your head and thanked God for the meal that you have in a public setting? What if you took the time to thank God and to praise God for something as basic as a meal? And that's not just true for our teens, I think it's true for all of us in a public setting. Something as simple as taking time to honor God and give him thanks for a meal. What if I'm in front of people? Well, you don't do it for them, but you don't not do it because of them. Are you known for praising God? How about having your family either biological, those with the same last name as you, or spiritual. Hear you pray and praising God. Are you giving opportunity to be able to pray with one another? Several of you have this, and I'll be honest, it's kind of awkward at times, but you have this tendency of when I talk with you about spiritual things, you stop mid-conversation, you start to pray for me. You start to pray. It's awkward, but I love it. 
I, 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 I wish I, you know, was maybe more inclined that way. And I'm not saying that everybody should act that way per se. It's not bad. But I'm just saying that there is an element of here's a moment where we're just going to stop and we're going to bring this to God and we're going to give him praise and thanks. And, and then we have the opportunity to hear you talk to God. And others may have the opportunity of hearing you talk to God. What if your children heard you praise God? What if your spouse listened to you praise God? And then being ready to share the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I mean, here's an invitation that's being made. The psalm writer is saying, come in here, come and see, right? And we think of the New Testament text, text that we should be ready for the hope that's within us, you know? That there will be opportunities when we have hope, when we praise God and our lifestyle is defined by praising God, it will be conspicuous, especially in this day and age. It will be conspicuous. On a personal note, or, or from a personal standpoint, I think it would do us well to discern what obstacles in our life exist. And I say the obstacles, obstacles to praise. You know, we, we read a chapter like this. We praise God for his wondrous deeds. We praise God for his listening ear. So what obstacles exist in our lives that are, are, are there that would inhibit our praise? What things do I have control of that, that I can actually remove so that it's easier for me, if I put it that way, it's easier for me to praise God. And when we think of the psalm writer, we think of, and we think of the, the life of praise, we don't think of verses 10 through 13 per se, all of those difficulties that he recounted. And so I ask, what do we allow our minds to dwell on? That's not to minimize any difficulties, but what is it that we allow our minds to dwell on? What do we allow our mind to feed on that would take away from praise to God? What consumes our attention to where praise to God gets crowded out by the worries and cares of this world? What are those things in our lives to where praise God? And, and I'm not talking about not talking about we just have a bad spiritual hair day. Those happen, right? But we're talking about a lifestyle of praise to God to where we have ongoing things that are taking place to where praising God feels like the mountain we can never climb because of all the bad. And if anyone had an excuse to not, a human excuse not to praise God, it would be someone who was brought into the prison, who had, a late, had an oppressive burden laid upon his loins who had his head ridden over by men, who went through fire and through water. All of those past experiences, and yet, praise God. And we go back to that point of submission. If I cherish bitterness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I cherish resentment, if I cherish excuses and we fill in the blank of whatever it is that the iniquity, uh, you know, whatever we're allowed to be able to hold on to because of our life experience, because we're more unique than other people, then we're not submitting to the master who delights in hearing your prayers. 
And so as God has been refining us, and I think he has, praise God that he has, especially in the year 2020. As he's been refining us, what then is left? When our comforts, when our preferences, even when our finances and sometimes our health can be taken away, what is left? I hope that what is left is a more genuine, a more pure, a refined Christian that functions with his brothers or her brothers and sisters in Christ to God's glory and seeing his church built. But I, I can't share this without asking. During this refining period, what have you found you to be? And, and if I can just maybe make a, a more precise application here, because we have many in our church who, if I can put it this way, remember the whole simplicity and complexity and simplicity thing? Many of us were given the answer to the problem from day one. We were raised in an environment that by God's grace, we knew the answer to the problem. We memorized it in first grade. And as we go through the complexity, we might have the answer, but we don't have any work to show for it. And all of a sudden, the answer is not right. And we look and we see what's there. Are you born again? Do you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You might have the answer. But faith without works, James says, is a dead faith. And during this refinement process, the work shows the faith. Are you truly saved? I can't help but ask that. Because during this process, I hope that not only we can answer that question, but we can have a greater assurance of that question. If you are questioning this, please talk to either the person that you came with or a pastor, someone who is discipling you. It's never, as Pastor Tim says all the time, it's never too late to do the right thing. It may be that God had you go through 2020 and all of this refinement process to have that heat be on there and keep burning and keep burning and keep burning and you're waiting for the gold to be there and waiting for the gold to be there. And there's nothing there. And you're like, I just need to be saved. Amen. Maybe today's the day. Not trying to be emotive, not trying to manipulate. Truth is truth. What a blessing it is to be able to praise God. Let's be defined by that within each other and within our, our, our society. Let's pray. God, I thank you and I praise you. We all do, Lord, from, from those who know you as Savior. God, I pray that at this time, Lord, that our, that our focus and attention would be to you, to you who is the giver of all good things, to you that hope is provided by, to you who gives us assurance even in this time, to you to where when we are in difficulties, you have given us the end of the story. 
and you have promised to be with us even through the difficulties. Thank you, Lord, for the psalm. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that is to come. In Christ's name, amen.